Those songs were absolutely perfect to go along with our lesson today because the first one is about the greatness of God and the second one is that we would be consecrated to him, that we would give ourselves in service to him. And so actually that is what we are talking about, which, you know, of course it goes along with the whole theme, but specifically that's what we're talking about here today. Anyways, let's go ahead and pray and we will get started. Father, I thank you for this morning. I thank you for another opportunity to join our hearts together. I thank you for the ladies that you have brought here today. I thank you for your continual goodness to us. I thank you for your Holy Spirit that gives us insight to your word. I thank you for your word that reveals to us all that you want us to know about who you are. I thank you for the passage that we're going to be studying today. I pray, Father, that it would stir our hearts, that it would give us... Uh, another glimpse at your glory of who you are, and that, Lord, our hearts would be moved to action, moved to a desire to please and honor and glorify you in our lives. I pray that you would give me clarity of thought and that you would give the ladies understanding by your spirit. In your name we pray all these things. Amen. It is the supreme purpose of God to bring glory to himself. As And as his creation, we are likewise commanded to glorify him. So Martha Peace adeptly addressed this topic and aims straight for the heart in the chapter we read this week. So if you actually did the reading, it was really a lot more questions in scripture really than anything else. And she had some really good questions. (laughs) And if you took any time to really evaluate some of those things, they're very convicting. Her questions were insightful and convicting, causing me personally to ponder whether or not my life brings glory to God. And I loved how she got into the nitty-gritty of it. And she, she didn't just talk about the, the bigger things, but in the little ways. What are the little ways that we are or are not bringing glory to God? So as I was meditating on the topic and considering what passage to teach from, I remembered one particular account in the Gospels that directly addresses Jesus' purpose in bringing glory to God. It is a familiar narrative, and you will likely remember it as well. Probably maybe you even do from the reference on the top of your page. It's the account of the Gospel of John that depicts Jesus raising Lazarus from the dead. Such a beautiful, powerful, historical event that boldly proclaims the glory of Jesus Christ and of God the Father as Jesus brought back to life a man who had been dead for four days. So before we jump into our passage, I would like to begin with a sobering, very heartbreaking event from my childhood. And my intent is not to tug at your heartstrings and stir up a bunch of emotion, although that may happen. But really what I want to do is I want to begin with an example of death so that as we move into this resurrection account of Jesus raising Lazarus from the dead, we have a good comparison of it. So perhaps considering the tragedy of death will give us a greater appreciation for what Jesus did in bringing Lazarus back to life. As a child, I remember my mom being summoned to a village hut late one night. My younger sister and I were permitted to accompany her on the 20-minute hike up to the village located in the remote mountainous region of Papua New Guinea. 
As we headed out, we were met by the wife and daughter of our coworkers. The five of us trekked up the muddy trail in pitch black darkness, aided only by a couple of kerosene lanterns that dimly lit our path. Conversation was minimal. Thoughts swirled, but we hesitated to break the silence. Our hearts were heavy as we carefully made our way along the rutted trail, avoiding mud holes and pig dung. We feared what we might find along upon our arrival at the windowless, thatched roof home of the young wife and mother who had called for help. Her infant baby, only weeks old, was critically ill. As we pushed open the small, slatted wooden door, bending low to enter, we were met by the smoky gray atmosphere of the small, round, one-room house. Along one side, dividing the house almost in half, a platform standing about 12 inches from the ground served as the only bed. The young mother sat at the far end holding her precious baby. Fear was etched into the expression on her face. And as the two white missionary women entered, she willingly handed her tiny child to them. Gently, my mom cradled the fragile infant whose labored breathing pierced our hearts. The hope of administering medical care was shattered by the devastating reality that the precious child was lying upon the threshold of death's door. Sitting in a line along that wooden platform, we all silently prayed for a miracle. Sorry. The moments crawled past as we watched the life slowly make its departure. Our hearts ached to do something, to change the circumstances, to breathe strength and vitality into the delicate brown body of this beautiful child. We prayed in desperation that death would be given no audience and that life would win the battle being raged in the stuffy, smoke-filled hut. Ever so slowly, the baby's breathing grew more and more shallow until almost imperceptibly life made its quiet exit. The little chest ceased its rhythmic motion and the faint breath stilled forever. With tears streaming down our cheeks, we mourned for the loss of life prematurely stolen. We mourned for the mother who still did not know the love of Christ. The only true comforter able to heal her broken heart. We mourned for the father, the villagers, one another, for ourselves. Death, so sudden, so final, so irrevocable. So absolute, oh, to have a miracle, oh, to bring back the precious life, oh, to fill the arms of that mother with the wiggly body and smiling face of her little one, oh, the sting of death, it pierced to the depths of our souls, it shattered our hearts. There is nothing so devastating as death. And nothing more beautiful than a life-giving God who conquered death forever. A God who can bring life back into a lifeless body. Who can raise a corpse from the grave. Only the creator. Only our life-giving God has the power over life and death. 
And the Apostle John reveals to us the glory of God made evident when Jesus called Lazarus from the grave. Truly, this is an amazing account because that's exactly what we see. We see Jesus' power over death. And if you've ever experienced death, you realize the desperate, devastating experience that that is. And of course, if the person is in Christ, we have an everlasting hope. But if that person is not in Christ, it is forever a devastating reality that can never be reversed. But we serve an amazing God who has absolute power over death. As we consider the wonder, the awe, the majesty of God's glory, we might immediately imagine things like the transfiguration, where the glory of Jesus was revealed to his disciples, or perhaps Isaiah's vision when he cried out, Woe is me, for I am undone. We do not typically consider how death might bring glory to God. Often our ideas of how God should receive glory is very different than God's ideas of how he should receive glory. We want and even expect God's glory to be revealed and proclaimed in what? In our safety, in our comfort, in our financial security, in our good health, in sparing us from harm, in easy, uplifting relationships in the protection of our loved ones. And we can go on and on and on about all the ways we think God would receive the greatest glory. And oftentimes we think he should receive the greatest glory by the miraculous, doing the impossible that that we can't accomplish. But Isaiah informs us that God's ways are not our ways. His glory often shines the brightest in our infirmities in our difficulties, in our weaknesses, and even in our death, or not necessarily ours, but in death in general. Isaiah 55, 8 and 9 says, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, nor are my ways your ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. It is our responsibility to align our desires, our knowledge, our will, our understanding to the will of God that is laid out in his word. As we humbly surrender, cooperating with our good and sovereign God, then he is glorified in us. As we look at this historical narrative, I want to help you consider two important biblical truths. Number one, It is God's supreme purpose to glorify himself. And number two, it is our supreme duty to give him glory. Sorry, that's not on your your outline yet. But you can jot those down somewhere. Number one, it is God's supreme purpose to glorify himself. And number two, it is our supreme duty to give him glory. So the first point is revealed in our text, and really the second point is going to be the application that we are going to draw out of the text here this morning. So this is a very long account, and I am going to read all of it because I want you to see the whole thing together. So if you don't mind to turn to John 11, we are going to read verses 1 through 46. And I will just say, 
There is no possible way I can really do this passage justice because there's so much here. And so we're just going to kind of skim across the top. Both Rachel and I struggle with this because it's like, oh, this passage is so good. If we could just sit here for, you know, the whole semester, it would be fabulous. But anyways, we're just going to kind of go through the whole thing quickly. So starting in John 11, verse 1. Now a certain man was sick, Lazarus of Bethany. The village of Mary and her sister Martha. It was the Martha who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was sick. So the sister sent word to him, saying, Lord, behold, he whom you love is sick. But when Jesus heard this, he said, This sickness is not to end in death, but for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified by it. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus, so when he heard that he was sick, he then stayed two days longer in the place where he was. Then after this, he said to the disciples, let us go to Judea again. The disciples said to him, Rabbi, the Jews were just now seeking to stone you, and are you going there again? Jesus answered, Are there not twelve hours in a day? If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble because he sees the light of this world. But if anyone walks in the night, he stumbles because the light is not in him. This he said, and after that he said to them, Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I go so that I may awaken him out of sleep. The disciples then said to him, Lord, if he has fallen asleep, he will recover. Now Jesus had spoken of his death, but they thought he was speaking of a literal sleep. So Jesus then said to them plainly, Lazarus is dead, and I am glad for your sakes that I was not there so that you may believe, but let us go to him. Therefore, Thomas, who is called Didymus, said to his fellow disciples, let us also go so that we may die with him. So when Jesus came, he found that he had already been in the tomb four days. Now Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off, and many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them concerning their brother. Martha, therefore, when she heard that Jesus was coming, went to meet him, but Mary stayed at the house. Martha then said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been there, my brother would not have died. Even now I know that whatever you ask of God, God will give you. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on that day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even if he dies. And everyone who lives and believes in me, he will never die. Do you believe this? She said to him, Yes, Lord, I have believed that you are the Christ, the Son of God, even he who comes into the world. When she had said this, she went away and called Martha, her, excuse me, called Mary, her sister, saying secretly, The teacher is here and is calling for you. And when she heard it, she got up quickly and was coming to him. Now Jesus had not yet come into the village, but was still in the place where Martha had met him. Then the Jews who were with her in the house and consoling her, when they saw that Mary got up quickly and went out, they followed her, supposing that she was going to the tomb to weep. Therefore, when Mary came where Jesus was, she saw him and fell at his feet, saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus therefore saw her weeping and the Jews who came with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in spirit and was troubled and said, Where have you laid him? They said to him, Lord, come and see. 
Jesus wept. So the Jews were saying, see how he loved him? But some of them said, could not this man who opened the eyes of the blind man have kept this man also from dying? So Jesus, again, being deeply moved within, came to the tomb. Now it was a cave, and a stone was lying across it. Jesus said, remove the stone. Martha, the sister of the deceased, said to him, Lord, by this time there will be a stench, for he has been dead four days. Jesus said to her, did I not say to you that if you believe, you will see the glory of God? So they removed the stone. Then Jesus raised his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but because of the people standing around, I said it so that they may believe that you sent me. When he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come forth. The man who had died came forth, bound hand and foot with wrappings, and his face was wrapped around with a cloth. Jesus said to them, unbind him and let him go. Therefore, many of the Jews who came to Mary and saw what he had done believed in him. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them the things which Jesus had done. So this passage, as I said, is very long and we cannot cover all of it. So for our purpose, we're only going to focus really on the character of Christ. What do we learn about Jesus his character, his priorities, his desires, his response, his concerns. So I want to begin by giving you a little bit of background. And once I do that, then we'll actually jump on to your outline there. So sorry, we're taking kind of a long time to get to it this morning. Mary and Martha lived in the village of Bethany, which, as our passage told us, was located two miles east of Jerusalem and was actually only separated by the Mount of Olives. It was located on the road between Jericho and Jerusalem. So as people came through or from Jericho, moving toward Jerusalem, they always had to go through Bethany. Every, excuse me, this is significant because Jesus' miracle of raising Lazarus from the dead occurs just before Passover. And guess what? What happens at Passover? everyone's coming into the city of Jerusalem. So all these people are coming through Bethany on their way just, just at the time when Jesus does this miracle. So this is also actually the only uh, time that Lazarus is mentioned. Well, he's mentioned actually in chapter 12 as well, but only because it mentions that the Jewish leaders want to kill him because Jesus raised him from the dead and they didn't want his testimony to continue. But really, this is the only place that it's mentioned. We know nothing more about him than what occurs in this account. It is evident that Jesus knew this family well because clearly they were close friends based on the message that the, sister, that the sisters sent to Jesus. Because remember what the message said, he whom you love is sick. And this is bigger than an agape love. We'll look at that later. It's the phileo love. It's the friendship love. <clears throat> it is likely that Jesus stayed with them often on his travels back and forth uh, to and from Judea. Since, because like I said, Bethany was on that main road. Then because the leaders in Jerusalem were so hostile to Jesus, trying to stone him the last time he was there, he had traveled a full day's journey away to minister and preach. So at this time, when this message comes to Jesus, he's actually a whole day away from Bethany. <clears throat> Excuse me. 
Considering the distance, we can put together a bit of a timeline of the events in the account. By the time Jesus received the message that Lazarus was sick, one day had already passed as the messenger had traveled. Jesus then prolonged this departure for two days. When he did leave, finally, after so that would have been three days at that point, when he did leave, he had another whole day of travel before he actually got to Bethany. So this would then account for the four days that Lazarus had been dead. So we can conclude that he must have died the day that the messenger left. So by the time Jesus reaches Bethany, Lazarus had already been buried for several days at this point. So there are two main themes in this chapter, and this, again, is not on your outline either, which I suppose I should have included some of this. I didn't think about it, but anyways. So the first theme is God's glory, and I hope that you picked up on that as we read through the chapter. It mentions it twice, God's glory. And then the second is Jesus' priority of growing the faith of the three groups of people who are mentioned in this account. And the word believe is said over and over again throughout the passage. So the, the three groups, the first is the sister, the sisters. The second group is the disciples. And then the third group are the Jews who are mourning with Mary and Martha. And really, I guess you could even extend it out, even though they're not really a part of it. But there could be a fourth group, I guess you could say, in the sense that as this miracle took place, all of the people that were around there were eventually going to head to Jerusalem. And what were they going to do? They were going to spread these three groups were going to spread the, the testimony of this miracle to all kinds of other people as well. So this gives us just a little bit of background as we, did, as we move on to our outline here. So A is Jesus loved Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. And uh, verse 3 says, So the sisters sent word to him saying, Lord, behold, he whom you love is sick. But when Jesus heard this, he said, The sickness is not to end in death, but for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified by it. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. Now listen to this next verse. It says, He loved them, so then looked what he, look what he did, because he loved them. It doesn't make any sense in our minds. It says, So when he heard that he was sick, he then stayed two days longer in the place where he was. He didn't rush off. What would we do? We would rush off with the best medical supplies, with the best doctors, with everything, with a helicopter, whatever we needed to do. We would rush to get there to save the life. Jesus did not. Jesus waited. So as I said before, the sisters use that word phileo, which is the love of friendship, companionship. It is a love founded in admiration, veneration, esteem. This is the kind of love that Jesus had for Lazarus. It wasn't just the agape love of God. It was an actual personal friendship that he had built over time with this family. Mary and Martha appealed to Jesus on the basis of his intimate friendship with Lazarus. This was no stranger to him. This was a personal and close friend. Ironically, Jesus' love for Mary and Martha is the very thing that prompts him to stay those two days longer. So it is important to keep in mind that biblical love is guided by the principles of Scripture and seeks for the greatest good of the other person. 
What a person desires is not always what will be in their best interest or for their greatest edification. Jesus knew what was best for Mary and Martha, and returning immediately to heal Lazarus would have hindered the ultimate good of growing their faith by revealing his character to a greater degree in the resurrection of Lazarus. He had only, had he only healed Lazarus, he would not have been able to raise him from the dead. Mary and Martha's faith would not really have increased because they already believed that Jesus could heal, but they never anticipated that he would raise Lazarus from the grave. Because remember, they both went and said, if you had been here, he wouldn't die. He wouldn't have died. They believed Jesus could heal. They'd seen him do it throughout his ministry all, all these past few years. They believed that. They had some faith. We'll see that in a minute. But had Jesus come at their bidding... Which, by the way, they didn't even call him to come. They just informed him that Lazarus was sick. But there must have been at least some uh, expectation that he would have healed um, in one way or another by sending that message. Biblical love seeks to help the other person to grow in their knowledge of God, to see him as high and lifted up, as glorious and transcendent, as holy, as gracious and good and kind yet just and righteous, always faithful to his word. Love always seeks to do what will help the other person become most like Christ, growing in humility, growing in faith, growing in holiness, and in total surrender to the will of God laid out in the word. So this is a quote by F.B. Meyer, and he says this, love permits pain. Think about that. In parenting, oh, sometimes it's so hard as a parent to let your child experience pain, to let them walk through the difficult consequences of their sin, which might just be a spanking, but that's the reality. Love permits pain. How different were his, how different were his love and their thoughts of it. He abstained from going, not because he did not love them, but because he did love them. His love alone kept him back from hastening at once to the dear and stricken home. Divine love could alone hold back the impulsiveness of the Savior's ten tenderheartedness until the angel of pain had done her work. So... As I said, we're just going to go quickly. So we're moving on to the next point. So we see Jesus' love and what that truly looked like. Now we're going to look at Jesus is compassionate toward the suffering. So um, verses starting, I guess, verses 33 through 35 says this. When Jesus therefore saw her weeping, so this is Mary he's referring to, and the Jews who came with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in spirit and was troubled and said, where have you laid him? Then they said to him, Lord, come and see. Jesus wept. So Isaiah describes Jesus as a man of sorrows acquainted with grief. 
This account emphasizes the reality of that statement because we see here that the grief of Jesus as he looks at these circumstances and he is weighed down by the reality of the grief of of Lazarus' death. There are many layers to Jesus' compassion. First, he feels his own loss because remember, Lazarus was his friend and Jesus was all human. Jesus felt that loss, the loss of a friend. Then he feels the grief of the sisters who had lost a beloved brother. And he feels the pain and sorrow of all of those who have come to mourn with Mary and Martha. So you can imagine, like when it says that Jesus wept, he was grieving over this entire situation. So there are several words that were used to describe Jesus' grief in this text. The first one is deeply moved. And this is an interesting word because it means to be very angry to be moved with indignation. That's not a word that we would look at and go, oh, of course, yes, that's a grieving word. I suppose in ways it can be, but I would tend to think in our way of being uh, in grieving with that word, it would probably be more sinful because we're angry at what happened to cause the death. But this word emphasizes the reality of Jesus' deity because he not only feels the temporal pain of Lazarus' death, He experienced the deep grief of the sin of the human race that plunges them into hell forever under the wrath of God the Father. It is a grief accompanied by indignation. Jesus was the creator of life. And now we have sin that has brought in death. And this entire scene is a result of the death that has come. Should Jesus experience indignation? Yes, I definitely think so. Then we have the word troubled. This means to affect with great pain or sorrow. And we see that for sure in Jesus' response. And then it also says the shortest verse in the Bible, right? What is that? Jesus wept. Well, that word weep actually means sobbing. You know what it feels like to sob, especially if you've lost somebody close to you. Your heart breaks in anguish as you sob that out. That was Jesus' response. J.C. Ryle says this, Even the Son of God could weep. It shows us above all that the Savior in whom believers trust is a most tender-hearted and feeling Savior. He is one who can be touched with sympathy for our infirmities. When we turn to him in the hour of trouble and pour out our hearts before him, he knows what we go through and can pity. And he is one who never changes. Though he now sits at the right hand in heaven, his heart is still the same that it was upon the earth. We have an advocate with the Father who, when he was upon earth, could weep. No matter how deep our sorrows, we can be reassured and comforted in the fact that our Savior weeps with us. He is a compassionate Savior. Our God is a compassionate God. And if he was not, he would not have sent a Savior to save us from our sin. We serve a compassionate, loving Savior. And then see, Jesus' glory is ultimate 
And this, of course, as I said, is one of the main themes of our passage here. We know that his glory was in mind in this account because Jesus mentions it two times. In verse 4, when he's talking to Martha, he says, excuse me, but when Jesus heard this, he said, this sickness is not to end in death, but for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified by it. Now, we know what Martha immediately thought, right? She went um, to eternity, and she's like, well, yeah, I know he's going to be resurrected again. She wasn't thinking about it in the temporal present. She's thinking about, yes, I know. Why would she have said, yes, I know it's going to happen? Because she had been with Jesus. She had been listening. Jesus had taught her. She had some good, strong, solid theology, that girl. So this is, this is great. But she couldn't imagine that Jesus would do it right now. And then we see again, Jesus says to her again in verse 40, Did I not say to you that if you believe, you will see the glory of God? So number one, he performed this miracle in front of many eyewitnesses. So remember, this is all for the glory of God. This is for Jesus' glory. So all that transpired around this account was so that Jesus would be glorified. It was the will of the Father and therefore also the will of Jesus Christ to demonstrate his deity, to reveal that he was the resurrection and the life. This miracle occurred just before the Passover where Jesus was crucified. It was designed to open the eyes of all who witnessed that miracle that might see Christ for who he truly was, the Son of God, the promised Messiah, the life-giving creator, the resurrection and the life. It was a preview to his own resurrection shortly to come. So they should have, when Jesus was crucified and resurrected, just resurrected just, just a short time later, they should have connected those dots. He raised Lazarus from the dead because he conquered death. And now look, he conquered death in his own death, raising from the dead. Jesus intended to help his disciples see him as the God-man, the giver of life, the God who has power over death. He intended that Mary and Martha would not only see him as the healer, but as the one who gives life, who conquers death. Because remember, Mary and Martha, they saw Jesus as the healer, but they didn't see him as the one who conquered death. And he provided the many Jewish mourners who accompanied Mary and Martha with the opportunity to believe in him for eternal life. Right there, that miracle, so that they would turn to him for salvation. And then even beyond, which I already kind of mentioned this earlier, but even beyond those who were eyewitnesses of this miracle, he designated the location so that many others would, ha- would hear of this miracle. Bethany would have been, like I said earlier, on this path that was traversed by hordes of people coming through. And they would have heard the news from the eyewitnesses that Jesus had raised a man four days dead in the grave and brought him back to life. And that would have spread like wildfire. And then number two, there was no denying this miracle. And this is what Jesus intended. His glory was to be revealed in the fact that you could not deny that this had happened. 
This was not, and we need to recognize this as well, because this actually was not the first time that Jesus had brought a dead person back to life. In fact, he did it two other times. He brought the son of the widow back to life and also Jairus' daughter. In those cases, however, both the widow's son and Jairus' daughter were very recently passed. In fact, so newly deceased that they hadn't yet been buried. And this is significant because the Jews always buried their dead immediately, usually on the first day of their death. Because why did they do that? They were unlike the Egyptians. Remember what the Egyptians did? They embalmed the bodies. The Jews did not do that, and they didn't preserve the bodies in any way. So it immediately began, the body of the dead person immediately began to decay. And as you know, that is a horrifying situation. Um, the smell, like Martha said, the stench. Don't open the tomb, the stench. So this, is, this was crucial to bury the body right away as a result. So because the widow's son and Jairus' daughter had only been dead such a short time, people could have doubted that it was actually a miracle, declaring that maybe they were just only sleeping because the bodies had had no time to begin that decaying process yet at that point. There was no doubt with the death of Lazarus. In the case of Lazarus, he had been dead for four days. There was no doubt in anyone's mind that he was actually dead. His body would have been in, in the full process of decay by the time Jesus called him to life. And no one would have mistaken this miracle. Thus, it would have entirely revealed the deity of Jesus Christ. This was all part of what led to the crucifixion. So this is all connected. This is why it's so wonderful studying the word of God because sometimes we just pull things out. And this is what Rachel and I have to do every week when we're teaching because we're trying to go along with the chapter. And it's like we pull out this one little thing and extract it. But as we study scripture as a whole, we begin to see how these pieces fit together. And this is one part of the preparation toward the death and resurrection of Jesus. Because the Jewish leaders would also have heard of this miracle. And they had already tried to kill him multiple times. And as the disciples said in the account, they said, well, he just tried to stone you or they just tried to stone you. And so they didn't even want to go back to Jerusalem because of that. And so now Jesus going back and then performing this miracle, you know the Jewish leaders heard it. And it would have provoked them to anger and set them on a more firm, intentional path to make sure that he was killed. So then number three, we have the significance of the miracle the purpose of the book of John is to reveal the deity of Christ. What better way to demonstrate his deity than to raise a dead man to life? So if you think about the themes of the Gospels, we have, so they kind of go in pairs. We have Matthew and Mark. So we have Matthew as Jesus as the king, Mark as Jesus as the servant, and then we have Luke as Jesus as man, and we have John as Jesus as God. So if you're trying to remember the themes of the book, sometimes that can be helpful. And we've landed on the last one here in John, where the purpose of the book is the deity of Jesus Christ. 
So Warren Wiersbe says this, if Jesus can do nothing about death, then whatever else he can do amounts to nothing. Death is man's last enemy, but Jesus Christ has defeated the horrible enemy totally and permanently. This is a celebration. The greatness of this miracle, so this is uh, J.C. Ryle again. The greatness of this miracle cannot possibly be exaggerated. The mind of man can scarcely take in the vastness of the work that was done. Here, in open day and before many hostile witnesses, a man four days dead was restored to life in a moment. Here was public proof that our Lord had absolute power over the material world. A corpse already corrupt was made alive. Here was public proof that our Lord had absolute power over the world of spirits. A soul that had left its earthly tenement was called back from paradise and joined once more to its owner's body. And this is why I wanted to begin with the story of that child that had died. Because as we sat there that night, there was no hope that that child could ever come back to life. None. It was forever. It was final. And you know what that's like. And particularly for somebody that doesn't know Christ. It is a hopeless grieving, a desperation. But that's why this is so amazing when we see what, what Jesus has done. is He's done the unthinkable which we could never do. We could never change. But that is who our God is. He has power over death. Jesus, God in the flesh, demonstrated his power over death. Truly amazing. Man can take life, try to preserve life, and even lengthen life through medical intervention, if God wills. But they cannot give life. The closest they can come, perhaps, is maybe in vitro or something like that. But they certainly cannot bring back to life the one who has died. Jesus demonstrates his deity, his power, his transcendence in raising Lazarus from the dead. And why does he do it? Why does he do it? For his glory and for the glory of the Father so that it is undeniable that he is God in human flesh, so that when he goes to the grave, it is God who has been sent to the grave, but will not stay there because he has power over death. And what does this do to the Jews standing around that didn't know? This caused many to believe Jesus unto salvation. This must lead us to understand that if he can raise the dead, he not, he, sorry, excuse me, can he not also do anything else? Moving from the greater to the lesser, if he can raise the dead, there is nothing he cannot do. So then we start to wrestle, right? But I asked him, I've been crying out for him to do this, to answer this prayer, and he has not done it. If he can raise the dead, why can he not heal? Why will he not heal? Why will he not 
do what I think is best. If he chooses, if God chooses not to answer our prayers, not to give us what we're crying out for, it is because he will receive greater glory by allowing us to walk through the depths of our trial rather than rescuing us from it. Keep in mind that this is motivated by love with the specific intention of growing our faith. This is what he does. He grows our faith through the trials as he reveals himself to us, as he provides strength and hope and comfort as we walk through the difficulties, as we see his care and his goodness, who he is then we see his glory in ways we could not have seen apart from the difficulty in trial. We must search our hearts. It is easy to say your will be done when Jesus raises our loved ones from the dead. But it is much more difficult to say your will be done when he leaves our loved ones in the grave and instead walks with us in our sorrows. We do not want to walk through the valley of the shadow of death. We do not want to experience the sorrow, the grief, the pain, the suffering. We want it to be easy. And how many times when we see something very tragic that happens and we immediately start crying out for the miracle, and there's nothing wrong with crying out for the miracle, but if we set our expectation that God must give us that miracle, we are out of line. Because then we are determining what God must do instead of surrendering our hearts and lives to him saying, your will be done. You decide how you will receive the greatest glory. And oftentimes, especially if there's something that's, that's a bit bigger and lots of people know about it, we truly think... God would get the most glory from this. And yet, that's not always true. Because a lot of times it's in the quiet places. It's in our personal wrestle. It's in our personal surrender that God gets the greatest glory. And as God receives glory, what happens to our faith? It grows as we see his faithfulness, he is glorified as we obey him, as we cooperate with him, and our faith grows. F.B. Meyer says this, It is often through pain and suffering that God reveals his glory to us. The sisters would never have known him in the resurrection and the life if Lazarus had not died. David would never have known God as his rock and fortress and deliverer if he had not been hunted on the hills of Engedi. How is it that God is revealing his glory to you in the challenges that you are facing? And they don't have to be huge like the death of a loved one. They can be much smaller. Are you surrendering yourself to him moment by moment, your will to his will? Because you understand, even in the smallest thing, he receives glory when we surrender and respond in a manner according to scripture and obedience to God, even with our attitude, with our motives. Some of these things that lay a little more hidden in the deep recesses of our hearts, those places are often the places as God 
brings the sin to the surface, brings the dross up, that then we must say, your will be done as he scoops the dross off the top. And we then are more and more made into the likeness of Jesus Christ. So then D, Jesus' plans are different from our plans. So number one, Jesus waited before he returned to Bethany. So Mary and Martha summoned Jesus, but he waited. John eleven six says, So when we heard that he was sick, excuse me, so when he heard that Lazarus was sick, he then stayed two days longer in the place where he was. So obviously you've noticed we're not covering this in necessarily chronological order because we are going for the character of Christ here. So that's why we're kind of jumping around. So we would expect that Jesus, when hearing the news that Lazarus was sick, would have immediately hastened back to Bethany to prevent his death. Or perhaps even healed him from a distance. But he didn't. He waited. Why did he wait? Because he had a better plan. One that involved pain and suffering and grief and sadness. That was the better plan. The suffering was the better plan. We would expect that love would prevent all the negative circumstances, protect the loved one from hurt, from the devastation. But Jesus' love had a higher goal, an eternal goal that would have been hindered had he rescued the sisters from temporal pain and suffering. God's ways are not our ways. And we oftentimes have a wrong understanding of who God is. And we kick against the goads because we don't understand. We think his glory ought to be our will rather than realizing our will should be his glory. Number two, Jesus' purpose to return to Bethany. So again, we see another aspect of this account where People thought Jesus should be doing something different than what he did. So in verses 7 and 8 and then in 16, it says, Then after this he said to the disciples, Let us go to Judea again. The disciples said to him, Rabbi, the Jews were just now seeking to stone you, and you are going there again. You can almost hear like the angst in, his, in their voices. What are you thinking about? And so then if you skip to verse 16, it says, Therefore, Thomas, who is called Didymus, said to his fellow disciples, Let us also go so that we may die with him. So this is what they assumed. If they went back to Bethany, those who were trying to stone Jesus would come back and try and do it again. And they actually weren't wrong, were they? And here's what Thomas says. So apparently Thomas has received quite a lot of bad press here. And also, you know, when he says, well, let me put my hands in your hands. He wrestles with his faith. However, you see him here. He's kind of he's kind of the Eeyore of the bunch, I guess, a little bit. But but here's the thing that's amazing about Thomas, because he says, we're going to all go to our death. All right, let's go. Here we go. We're going with him. He didn't say, all right, well, fine. If you're going to go, you go. He's like, I'll die with you. That's some loyalty. 
That's a true disciple of Jesus Christ. So as I mentioned before, Bethany was only two miles from Jerusalem, separated only by the Mount of Olives. Recent attempts to stone Jesus were fresh in the minds of these disciples, so they warned Jesus, do not go. So clearly, Thomas is so convinced that Jesus will be killed that he says, let us go. So Ryle, J.C. Ryle says this, and this is a little bit of a long quote, and I really debated, but you guys get it. It's fabulous. I don't really like super long quotes, but anyways, this I think is, is helpful. If you guys have never read anything by Ryle, oh, please do. The man just communicates so deeply and so richly. So this is what he says. The servants of Christ are often placed in circumstances just as puzzling and perplexing as those of the disciples. What? You're going right back where they just tried to kill you? They are led in ways of which they cannot see the purpose and object. They are called to fill positions from which they naturally shrink and which they would never have chosen for themselves. The path they are obliged to walk is not the path of their own choice. At present, they cannot see its usefulness or wisdom. At times like these, a Christian must call and exercise his faith and patience. He must believe that his master knows best by what road his servant ought to travel. He will find one day that there was wisdom in every step of his journey, though flesh and blood could not see it at the time. If the 12 disciples had not been taken back into Judea, they would not have seen the glorious miracle of Bethany. If Christians were allowed to choose their own course through life, they would never learn hundreds of lessons about Christ and his grace, which they are now taught in God's ways. The time may come when we shall be called to take some journey in life which we greatly dislike. When that time comes, let us set out cheerfully and believe that all is right because God's ways are not our ways. So then E, Jesus seeks to increase our faith. So number one, we're going to look at it in the categories of people here, but the disciples. So John eleven fourteen and 15 says this. So Jesus then said to them plainly, Lazarus is dead, and I am glad for your sakes that I was not there, so that you may believe. I am glad. I'm glad I wasn't there so Lazarus would die. Do you feel the weight of that statement? It's a little horrifying. If you said something like that, I would look at you again and be like, would you hate him? Remember, it was love that drove Jesus. See, God's ways are not our ways. He has a completely different scale than we do. And it's not his that needs to change. It's ours that needs to change. The disciples only considered the danger he was putting himself into. They never imagined his greatest miracle of raising the dead to life was about to transpire. Jesus was about to blow their minds, revealing who he was in his deity. That was the best thing for them. 
Though they had witnessed many miracles and had walked with Jesus for three years, still their faith was weak. Jesus intended to strengthen it, not only for that present miracle, but also in preparation for his own resurrection, which was soon to occur. So then we see he strengthens the faith of the sisters, number two. So verse 21 and then skipping to verse 32. Martha then said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. And then verse 32, Mary says the same thing. When Mary came to where Jesus was, she saw him and fell at his feet, saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Clearly, they agreed on this. They must have discussed it, perhaps. If Jesus would have been here, this would not have happened. In their grief and sorrow, they longed for the one that could heal. The sisters displayed a meager amount of faith, but it was still faith. They knew Jesus could have healed Lazarus, but their faith was immature, anemic. They failed to grasp that Jesus was not limited by time and space. He could have healed Lazarus regardless of where he was. Just remember like he did the servant of the centurion? And if you read that account, it says, and at that very hour, the servant was healed? Jesus could have done that. Even though they believed that Jesus could have healed Lazarus, they never for a moment considered that Jesus could raise him from the dead. They were about to see that not only could Jesus prevent death in bringing healing to the person who was ill, but he could reverse it. He had complete power over death to conquer it. And then we see the Jews, the faith of the Jews increased as well. So in verse uh, 41 and 42, Jesus raised his eyes as he was speaking to God the Father. And he says, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me. But because of the people standing around, I said it so that they may believe that you sent me. This was his desire that the mourning Jews, all these people that had been mourning with Martha and Mary, would see the reality of his deity and believe unto salvation. They beheld the glory of God. And what does verse 45 tell us? It says, therefore, many of the Jews who came to Mary and saw what he had done believed in him. Our faith is often based in our own selfish desires. We place our faith and trust in things we can see and touch and feel, which isn't faith at all. We want God to do the miraculous. In this account, he did do the miraculous but not before he first led them through suffering and pain and sorrow and death and grief. He raised Lazarus from the dead, and by doing so, he increased the faith of those who were present. Have you ever considered that sometimes our faith is better grown and developed apart from the astonishing miracles? Most often, our faith is better grown when God walks with us in the long haul of the trial, comforting strengthening us in our grief, in our hardships, challenges, difficulties. 
Ladies, if any of you are walking through a long trial at this point, let me encourage you that our God is his striving to bring glory to himself through that long trial. And he is, if you are cooperating with him, he is conforming you to be more like Jesus Christ. Long trials are so valuable because as we continue to try to understand who God is, to come up against the word, to come up against our will again and again and again, the Lord breaks down our misconceptions of who he is and how he works and shows us who he truly is and brings us to our knees in greater surrender and repentance for our sin. God's glory is demonstrated to grow our faith, but it is not up to us to determine how he reveals his glory. Whether he reveals it in the miraculous or in the mundane moment-by-moment strength that enables us to overcome our sin, it is for the purpose of growing our faith. And in that, God is glorified. We must live by faith according to what Scripture says. When we fail, what do we do? We repent. Go back to the Word. Meditate on the promises. And then in obedience to Scripture, we live by faith in our will, in our emotions. That's a hard one, right? In our thoughts, in our words, in our actions. And in this, God is glorified. This should be our heart's passion that God would receive the greatest glory rather than us getting what we want. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you and praise you for this wonderful passage that you've given us to look at this morning. I thank you for John's faithfulness to the Holy Spirit who enabled him to write these words for us. I thank you for your love for us. I thank you that you are a God that conquers death, that we have hope in you eternally because of that. I thank you that Jesus is the resurrection and the life and that we have life in him because of that. Lord, I pray that if there is anybody here this morning that does not truly know you unto salvation, that you would open their eyes, that you would give them understanding, bring them to repentance, that they might know you for salvation. I thank you and praise you for your word, for your kindness, for your goodness, for your love. I thank you that your ways are not our ways and that you are constantly working for our greatest good rather than what we think is good. I pray that as we go to our small groups that you would be glorified in our conversations there. In your name we pray. Amen.